Hello, my name is David Runciman, and this is a special live edition of Talking Politics. We're coming to you from the Cambridge Alumni Festival. We are in front of a live audience in a big, slightly rickety old Cambridge Lecture Theatre. We're going to be taking questions from our audience a bit later, but before that, we have one of our regular panels. We have Professor Gary Gerstel, who's the Mellon Professor of American History here in Cambridge, and three of our regular contributors to Talking Politics, Chris Brooke, political theorist and also expert on British politics, Erin Rapport, who's our resident expert on American foreign policy, and Aisha Zarakol, who is a scholar of international relations and also has both a professional and personal interest in the politics of Turkey. We're going to start with Trump, we're going to end with Brexit, and we're going to talk Turkey in between. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast, John Lanchester, Mary Beard, and we hope to have some more soon talking about the state of democracy and the state of the world. As well as politics, the LRB has book reviews, essays about art, poetry and exhibitions. Whether you want to get a deeper understanding of world events or just get away from it all and read about Picasso and octopuses, the LRB will have something fascinating for you. Gary, you were on this podcast a while back and the world changes so fast I can't even remember how different the world is now than it was even a few months ago. But something that's changed just in the past few weeks is that the trajectory of the Trump presidency seemed to be his approval rating just steadily ticked down to the point where it looked like it had almost become the conventional wisdom that he'd hit his core. And his core is about 38% of people who I think of the ones when he was campaigning and he said, I could shoot someone in Fifth Avenue and my people wouldn't mind. That group that doesn't seem to mind what he does. And then just in the last 10 days, for the first time in his presidency, and these are only small movements, but they are significant, it started to tick up again. And now he's back up to 42, 43% of people, which isn't enough to win him an election, but it, it's possible, although I suspect unlikely, that something might have changed. And the speculation is two things might have happened, one of which is the hurricanes were good for him in that he did better than his Republican predecessor, George W. Bush. It would be hard to have done worse uh, during Hurricane Katrina. But the other is that he started to make these noises about speaking to Democrats and possibly even being the kind of above-party politics president that he occasionally threatened he might try to be. And that led to some excitable newspaper commentary that this is a new kind of politics. The party system is over. Is it? No. Yeah. no I, th I thought it wasn't. <laughs> Long yeah. question. Short, We've heard short that talk uh, a lot. American media, like British media, is overheated at this moment of political tension. The hurricanes helped Trump quite a lot. He was acutely aware of Bush's disastrous record with Katrina. He was the commander-in-chief in a moment of intense crisis. That certainly helped him. His pivot toward the Democrats is quite interesting, took everybody by surprise. This was over making two deals with them. One is to extend the debt borrowing ceiling so the United States would not default on all its obligations, which are quite considerable. And the other element was agreeing to pass legislation that would allow 800,000 undocumented children who were brought to the United States as small children. They were offered a path toward legality the Republicans want to revoke that. These 800,000 people are horribly exposed. They've given all their data to the government to trust them. And now the government has all that data and can, will, if the Republicans get their way, deport them in a moment. 
This was a moment where he pivoted. Why is as much a mystery as everything else he's done? He does seem to have a soft spot for children. His strike on Syria was also motivated by pictures of children. And I think he is very angry at the Republican Party. And what he is is a good counterpuncher, a tactician, able to move in the moment to what he perceives to be his advantage. But we have to be very careful before we see in this a larger strategic move on his part, because I'm not sure he's capable of a larger strategic move. The bigger story here is the crisis of the Republican Party. That's how Trump's candidacy began, as a civil war in the Republican Party. We forget that now. The Republican Party has more power in Washington and, the, and in the state houses than it has had any time in the last 100 years, since the 1920s. It has been able to do absolutely nothing during nine months of office. They may come to the end of the year and have nothing. What does Trump pride himself on? Self-love, uh, adoration of the public, power, deal-making. He wanted to have a deal. Chuck Schumer, the leader of the Democrats, is a New Yorker. They dined over Chinese food. That's what New Yorkers do. They make deals over Chinese food. It's a very important moment, and it shows the potential of bipartisanship in a national legislature that has been absolutely dysfunctional for about 15 years now. It's been 10 years since Congress has passed a very significant piece of legislation. That's part of the reason the numbers have ticked up. There is potential serious for bipartisanship. He ought to grab it as a strategic move in ways that would help him. But Trump being Trump, we can't say that he will be still in this place one month or two weeks from now. One thing that Trump has to be careful of, if I were advising him, which I don't, is that there isn't, I don't think, as much of a long-term benefit in terms of electoral rewards at the ballot box for bipartisanship as there used to be in American politics. So this might make moderate or independent Americans somewhat happy with Trump a little bit for, I think, a short period of time, but it has the potential to make Republicans and his base very bitter for a much longer period of time. Because in a way, that's the question. See, so he says, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my base wouldn't mind, but I talked to Democrats. I, 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 talked, I referred to I Chuck, Schumer, Chuck Schumer, and, Schumer and Nancy Pelosi as Chuck and Nancy, you know, my friends Chuck and Nancy. That doesn't rub the Republican base the right way. I mean, the thing to remember about American politics is you used to have a two-party system that was very unlike the British two-party system, that you had very undisciplined political parties. Ideologically speaking, they were not at all homogeneous. You had very conservative Democrats, you had very left-of-center Democrats, as you do today, and, and likewise, you had liberal Rockefeller Republicans as well as conservative Republicans, and there was quite a lot of overlap between the parties, and thus there was quite a lot of overlap in the electorate, and you didn't have people necessarily who were dyed-in-the-wool Republican, you just always, you know, strongly identified. The only exception to that really was, of course, the Solid South, uh, which remembered the Civil War. It still does. I think it's going to rise again, I think they think. So you had a lot of room for compromise because you wouldn't necessarily get punished at the ballot box. But then in the 60s and 70s, with the Civil Rights Movement, with uh, Vietnam, with the primary system being introduced that gave a lot more power to party activists, you had people kind of gradually, slowly but surely, sort themselves. Conservatives all sorted themselves into the Republican Party, and, and liberals all sorted themselves into the Democrats, and now never the twain shall meet. Um, and so the payoff for that sort of bipartisan deal-making, even if it does appeal to the general electorate, when it comes to the party activists who are responsible for endorsements and deciding you know, if somebody's going to primary you 
And I think Trump could, <laughs> I, I'd be kind of almost surprised if he didn't get primaried, if he doesn't choke on a chicken bone by, by 2020. You know, this could be pointed at as, you know, he's not really a Republican, because there was always doubts about whether he was really a Republican, because he's a fairly late convert. But aren't you exaggerating the, the extent to which the polarization is translating into party attachment? Because it's possible that people will go for Trump and abandon the Republican Party. I mean, they are polarized. They hate the federal government, etc. What, what if Trump positions himself as someone who's above party politics and is fixing? I mean, that's what he was selling, right? I think that's possible. I mean, one of the, so that's a good question, right? Is how much of this is a cult of personality? Well, the thing to keep in mind, though, is yeah. I mean, a lot of Trump's appeal actually is right. He's against the establishment, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. But right, I think people who like Trump and do like him in part because he's against the Republican Party establishment are not the same types of people who, right, what's, what's worse than the Republican Party establishment is any Democrat. So for them, this could be a real kind of possible deal breaker, but I think it would have to be persistent behavior on Trump. I don't think this one episode by itself is either going to really, you know, help him or sink him. And Gary, one more sort of historical perspective question. Clearly, part of what's driving all of this endless, agonized commentary is the desire to make sense of this, this chaotic period in American politics, this feeling that something has fundamentally changed, but no one knows what it is that's fundamentally changed. Everything has changed and nothing has changed. People overinterpret short-term movements. Is the other possibility here that actually it's just people are getting more used to him? Some of his ability to tweet and have the entire world draw in their breath has worn off, and people are just beginning to familiarize themselves with the idea that Donald Trump is president of the United States. Not everyone here is still totally at ease with that. I think he is being normalized. His outrageous tweets have become a normal part of American politics. They cascade out on a daily basis, particularly heavily Saturday night and early Sunday morning for reasons I'd like to know more about in terms of what else is not, go not, going, not going on at that time. Uh, so, yes, and you could say that the political system is adjusting to his outrageousness in a way, temporizing it, but then that brings you to North Korea and the tweet to obliterate an entire society, and that wakes us up and reminds us what normalization of this sort can involve. I do think this is a moment uh, ripe for some kind of party reinvention in the United States. It's not just true of the United States. I think a lot of Britain is going through this, France is going through this, uh, parties that thought they knew who they were don't know who they are anymore. It's very rare, though, in the United States for a new party to take shape. The last successful new party to emerge in the United States was in the 1850s, the Republican Party. That's the young party in American politics led by Abraham Lincoln. If you can imagine a Lincoln figure today, oh my God, God help us, such a figure could begin to negotiate this bipartisanship seriously. And this is where we feel the deficit uh, and the limited nature of Trump so severely, because he is not in any sense capable of leading that. What he can do is explode things, but he's not capable of putting anything back together. Okay, so that then brings us on to Turkey in a way, because uh, Trump spoke, all, all world leaders seem to have their, I don't actually know how it works, they had their moment at the podium at the United Nations. Trump got the world's attention as he always does, calling uh, Kim Jong-un, the rocket man, and threatening North Korea with obliteration and so on. Um, but Erdogan gave a pretty blood-curdling speech, too, about the Kurds, about terrorism. 
And Trump, one of the things that Trump does, he doesn't just sort of gobble up all the attention in the United States, he gobbles up the world's attention. I mean, there are lots of other challenging, somewhat threatening political leaders saying some pretty provocative things, including at the United Nations last week. Certainly in Britain, Erdogan's speech got no coverage at all. Just tell us, in a sense, because we've talked about Turkey with you on the podcast before. When you see Erdogan, is he projecting actual strength? I mean, that, that kind of really quite fiery rhetoric. Is he cementing his power in Turkey, or is it actually a sign that he's weaker than he was? Internally, he's weaker than he was. He's trying to cut deals with Eurasianists right now, shedding his old allies. So in, in, in some ways, you know, Trump and Erdogan are like two peas in a pod, you know, constantly changing alliances and trying to stay... Being bipartisan. Yes, being bipartisan. But the degree to which he can get away with this type of rhetoric uh, on the world stage, I mean, I, I think goes to show you where we are in world politics. On Monday, there's a referendum in uh, Iraqi Kurdistan about independence. And speaking of things getting no attention, this is one of those things. And for the last hundred years, so many wars have been fought on you know, Kurdish independence. It's one of the seminal issues of Middle Eastern politics. And almost nobody is talking about this. And there are going to be very significant repercussions from that. So what, is, what for you is at stake then in that referendum? The Kurdistan part of uh, Iraq, which was semi-autonomous, is moving. They're having a referendum like in, in Spain, like the, the Catalan referendum, uh, which is also coming up soon. And they, they're, they're basically going to vote on whether they, they can be independent or not. And they don't have a constitutional right to do this, but they've called it, and they're going ahead with it, despite criticisms from Turkey, uh, Iran, and other regional powers who have a vested interest in preventing that outcome. But the US has been almost silent about this. They are sending mixed signals. And Trump met with Erdogan and said Erdogan was getting high marks and you know he's a great leader and so on. So American foreign policy in the Middle East is like a rudderless ship. And so there are lots of ways of dividing up the world at the moment. And sometimes people say there are these kind of strong men leaders. Modi would be another one. Putin's another one. And when you see them all arrayed at the United Nations, not all of them, but most of them, you do seem to get two different kinds of rhetoric now. There's the Erdogan version or the Trump version, which is kind of lawless. I mean, it's almost celebrating it's these people are terrorists and we've just got to deal with them. And then there are the people who would include Theresa May, who are still trying to defend an idea of a kind of international order. Aaron, where's, who's winning? Who is winning? <laughs> Goodness gracious. At the moment, it, it depends on whether you will take the long view or the short view. Uh, at, at the moment, it seems like the idea of an international order is a little bit quaint because, uh, like it or not, since 1945, the United States has underpinned what John Eikenberry calls a constitutional liberal order, right? A more or less open order based on the United States being primary interparist right amongst all its allies but still allowing its allies quite a bit of voice in NATO, in international economic institutions, so on and so forth, right? So a fair amount of cooperation. Not to say that the United States didn't act kind of like an imperial hegemon, certainly in Latin America or other places in the third world, but you did have something like a liberal constitutional order. Trump has clearly disparaged that, 
does not think that this is in the United States' interest. It's a terrible deal, right? If it loses. He thinks that the United States cutting deals with its allies in which in exchange for diplomatic support and cooperation that they get security, support perhaps special economic treatment. He thinks that's a net negative for the United States. Really all the underpinnings of this old order Trump doesn't buy into and really has never bought into if you look at his political opinions going back decades, right? Economic nationalism and kind of US supremacy and, and seeing the world as a zero-sum game uh, in which there are only winners and losers, right? Cooperation doesn't you know, raise all ships. That's Trump's worldview. And for all the talk in the United States on the right or maybe the alt-right about globalists and how globalists are bad, this is actually kind of becoming in, in a way a transnational globalist movement, right, of leaders like Trump and Putin and others who are, for one reason or another, incredibly skeptical of this old American order. So if I put the blunt question, in the world as you describe it, is it still which side America is on in that divide that decides who's winning and losing? I mean, you see, Theresa May can say whatever she likes, but if she doesn't have the President of the United States supporting her, the, that old liberal order is on the wrong side. For I would say that's right now, that's not only my presumption, that's been since the end of World War II, Great Britain's presumption as well, right? That's why the special relationship has been, you know, uh, uh, well, frankly, it's been more special on this side of the pond than it's been on the other one. One thing, though, we can ask about is whether this is completely new. Um, if you think about things from the perspective of the 19th century, it wasn't at all obvious that the world was heading towards liberal constitutional democracies and a harmonious international order. And a lot of people in the 19th century thought that the rise of democracy meant authoritarian strongmen with a plebiscitary authority who had the broad support of the masses in their countries, but absolutely weren't restrained by constitutions or party politics. Figures like General Bonaparte, who dominated European politics in the revolutionary period down to 1815, then figures like Andrew Jackson in America, later on in the 19th century, Otto von Bismarck. These were the leaders that made, meant that a lot of people thought that the democratizing trends in European and world politics would culminate in these kinds of leaders being the norm rather than the exception. But because we've now spent decades teaching about the rise of democracy in terms of constitutions and liberal norms and accountable politics and parliaments and political parties, and because the strongmen have tended to be straightforwardly anti-democratic figures like Stalin or like Hitler, we've tended to lose sight of this older tradition. But if you think back into the world of the 19th century, people wouldn't be at all surprised that the world looks something like it looks at the moment. Nor would the writers of the Federalist Papers, for that matter. Absolutely. Okay, so then one last question for me before we open it up to the audience, which Chris and others to answer. Uh, the big news, I guess, in British politics um, in the last couple of days was Theresa May's Florence speech, which was certainly being trailed in advance as an epochal event, and wasn't really, I think. It was an attempt to put some of the things that were causing her most trouble a little bit further down the road and it was trying to please different people in different ways. I don't think it resolved anything. What it seems to have done is focus people's minds on the thought that this is, whatever any staunch pro-Brexiteers might have believed, this is at minimum a four-year or not a two-year process. So the question then, in a way, is it's really hard, I think, at the moment to imagine Theresa May 
being prime minister in four years' time? Or has this speech changed that? Because really, that's one of the things that she was doing there, which is she was laying out a vision which does depend on her remaining as prime minister. And now that needs to be longer than it looked like a few days ago. Theresa May is a very weak prime minister, and we saw that just the other day, and that she needed a two-and-a-half-hour cabinet meeting to approve the text of a speech. That's not normal at all. And one of the reasons the speech is underwhelming is that, I mean, one can surmise that quite a few of the bits that might have been more interesting had to be rendered obscure or removed. But there aren't many great speeches that were written by a two-and-a-half-hour committee meeting. Absolutely. Um, so... On the one hand, she's a weak leader, but on the other hand, there doesn't seem to be much appetite in the Conservative Party for having a leadership contest right now. And that's not just because Jacob Rees-Mogg might win it, but it isn't clear that any of the factions in the Conservative Party have the strength to force a victory in a leadership contest, and no one really wants to precipitate one if they're not confident that their side is going to win it. So she may end up being weak, but surprisingly stable. Clearly, the speech is... To coin a slogan that um, she didn't use in the election campaign. Um, <laughs> yes, strong and stable, weak and wobbly, and she's going for weak but stable. Um, Which has got something to be said for it in a Clearly, the, the speech was an act of kicking the can down the road. I mean, the key thing that's coming up is what the Europeans are going to make of it, and I don't think they'll be too worried about the money or the question of citizen rights, in the end, the UK will give the European Union what it wants. The question of Ireland and the Irish border is now the really complicated one. And we should say that uh, Mr Macron, when he said there are three things that need to be resolved before we can get on to trade deals, yep. it is very striking. It's remarkable, in a way, to hear a French president say, not talking to you until you've sorted the Irish question. And Macron was echoing what Barnier said immediately after... May's speech, and it's a complicated one, and it's complicated for two reasons. Firstly, because Ireland being included in stage one of the process means that the Europeans are imagining that the question of the border can be sorted out before they talk about trade, but it doesn't seem to work like that because what border you have shapes what kind of trade you can talk about. But the more interesting political aspect of it is that it's extraordinarily awkward having the democratic unionists now propping up the government because the two most plausible visions of the Irish border are either that you don't have a border at all but that you stay in the customs union so it doesn't matter or that you have the border in the Irish Sea and Northern Ireland remains effectively part of the European economic area and neither of those are politically acceptable in the current balance of political forces, which is why you've got the government in its paper on the Irish border saying, oh, you can do it with technology that will track every single item that crosses the border and have information about exactly where it's been produced and so on. And the government think tank, the Legatum Institute, the government, the pro-government think tank, is saying that you can police the border with drones and airships. And this is, this is crazy fantasy. And the Europeans can see that it's crazy fantasy, but the government doesn't have anywhere to go because the DUP won't let them come out for a sea border and the hardliners in the cabinet won't let them come out for remaining in the customs union. And there's a real problem there, and it will be interesting to see how the Europeans react to that 
because they could just say, well, until you give us a serious proposal on the border, we're not going to take talks further, and so there's not going to be a deal. Or they could accept that there's a real political difficulty and park it for now, start talking about trade, and see if the border question becomes politically feasible further on down the line, which either means the Labour Party making it clear that it will support the government so that it has the votes to overturn unionist objection, or it would need another general election, another general election, to produce a single party government that isn't dependent on supports of unionist politicians. And, and in a way, that's the risk that she took. So the, the advantage, if she can persuade people, this is a four-year process, and it depends on her as it gives her more time. The risk is that if people think really four more years of Theresa May in this very weak position in relation to the question of Ireland so that we can't get on to the next bit, it could easily, within a matter of weeks, destabilise her. And however little the Tory party's appetite is for a leadership election, at a certain point in politics, when something's got to give, it's got to give. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So we are happy to take questions on anything you would like to ask. If it's for a particular panellist, do say. If, you, if it's a general question, likewise. So if we start here. My name is David Hacking, and for 30 years I was a member of the English House of Lords. I'd like to go to the first topic, and may I just enter this, uh, the first topic by saying that I was in New York on Monday evening with my wife, having dinner with two lifetime supporters of the Democratic Party. And they said right at the beginning, we can't talk about American politics. It's far too painful. So we did put one question forward. We said, why is it so painful? And the example that was given was that uh, Obama put forward a candidate in the vacancy that then existed in the Supreme Court. And the Republican Party, I think led by the leader in the Senate, blocked that appointment for a whole year. And then when Trump comes in, uh, he is able to make an appointment. It was uh, contested a bit, but it went through. And we said, what about that appointment? And all our American friend could say, Prince of Darkness. Gary. The story you recount is accurate. I uh, can't speak to their pain, but I, I do understand it. The way in which to interpret the Republican Party's blockage of Obama's Supreme Court nomination is something akin to a coup. Uh, the Supreme Court has nine members split before this appointment evenly between liberals and conservatives, and a lot of conservatives and Republicans voted for Trump because of the Supreme Court, and that's a matter on which he has delivered. There is no precedent in all of American history for what the Republicans did in the Senate, and what they did was they refu refused to consider and hold hearings on Obama's appointment. The Senate has the right to turn down an appointee or a nominee of the, of the president, but there is no precedent for 
the Senate refusing to hold hearings on a president's nominee to the Supreme Court. And your friends are right to be outraged uh, by that act. It's not strictly illegal because the Senate is both an official body and a club that makes its own rules. Uh, and so it has capacity to change those, those rules. But I think if you think of how it happened, what the implications are, it ought to be thought of as something um, akin to a partial coup. What has been encouraging about American politics since Trump's election has been the resistance of the courts, the use of the legal process, the use of constitutional constraints to constrain him where he can be constrained, protests in the street, the Mueller investigation of his actions with Russia prior to the election. There are many parts of the, the legal and political system in the United States that are still quite healthy and are resisting. The question is, for the United States and American citizens and really the world, is how long this can go on, how long the battering can go on without those more fundamental norms being seriously damaged over the long term. And we'll come back to you in a second, but I just want to pick up on that because it is something I've noticed, and maybe Aaron, you've got something to say about this. People do talk, use the language of coup now. I mean, we used to know what a coup was, and now it's as though we don't because both sides actually, some Republicans think there's been a coup against Trump, um, the, the deep state and so on. And people do use the language of coup or partial coup. And I never know whether anyone actually has a frame of reference for this now. I mean, there's a historic frame of reference for a coup, but we're not talking about that kind of coup. I mean, Aaron, do you think that the language of coup genuinely makes sense for this? Because if, this, if that was a coup, then American democracy is over. No, I don't think the language of coup makes sense, so I can understand how the sentiment would go. Um, what I would say is the keyword that, that Gary used, um, it was norm. And, and we're realizing now in the era of Trump how much of the American political system rested not on formal codified legal prescriptions and prohibitions, but on kind of generally understood but often unarticulated norms, right? Which are just kind of collections of principles and values around which people's expectations converge. And one of those expectations is if the president nominates somebody for the Supreme Court, even if it's a ham sandwich, the Senate will hold some hearings on it and then say, no, we prefer turkey sandwiches and vote it down, right? But that didn't happen in the Merrick Garland case, which is the, the person, the judge who uh, Obama had nominated before Neil Gorsuch took the seat. Likewise, it's kind of taken for granted that presidents will release their tax returns. So we can see if when they get into office, they're going to have massive financial conflicts of interest. But Trump didn't do that, didn't do that with his health record either, and so on and so forth, right? And again, none of this is illegal. It's not unconstitutional, but it is shaking people up because it, it really defies expectations and it feels unfair. It just feels like, hey, that wasn't part of the deal. We'd always done things one way, now you're doing things a totally different way. And I think part of this, the, the, the biggest norm-violating party, you can't, it's, it's not the, oh, both sides do it so much, it's, it's the Republican Party. And the Republican Party is in danger of becoming an anti-democratic, not capital D, but lowercase d, anti-democratic party. Because in some ways, demographically, they see the writing on the wall. The portion of white evangelical Christian Americans as a percentage of the population is declining. And as a result, they are taking steps like, well, we've got to make sure we control the courts. We've got to make sure that we engage in voter suppression efforts, which they don't call voter suppression efforts, but 
to make sure that the people who vote for our candidates are, are represented relatively well at the ballot box and so on and so forth. This is a dangerous, this is the biggest norm that's being broken, right, is the idea that maybe democracy is not such a good thing if it produces candidates we don't like. I'm just struck by the extent American politics has come to resemble Turkish politics. Everybody <laughs> accusing everybody of, uh, you know, conspiring for coups and uh, discussions of deep state and so on. Uh, I mean, after all, Turkey had the definitive coup that <laughs> yeah. wasn't a coup that was a coup that wasn't a coup. Yes, so I just, I just hope that uh, Americans aren't stuck with Trump for 17 years, like Turks. And, and in a way, <laughs> just to go back to what we were saying before, that's, I don't want to sound too semantic about this, but that's why the normalization question really matters. If we're talking about norms and not laws, then what becomes normal actually shifts the basis of politics. Okay, we've got lots and lots of questions. Possibly on the same theme and the mysteries of the US Constitution, a la Trump, can he pardon himself if necessary and can he do that by tweet? <laughs> it's actually a constitutional question that's gonna to have to be waged out in the courts. I don't believe he can pardon himself. And also a point to be made about uh, impeachment. Impeachment can only happen for acts committed in office, not before office. So he cannot be impeached for what he may have done in the election with Russia. And it should be said too that in terms of the surprises of the American political process, impeachment is above all a political process and not a legal process. And what I mean by that, it's not as though Impeachment happens when someone reaches a th certain threshold of illegality. Impeachment happens when the majority party in the House of Representatives decides they want to impeach. And the Republican Party is not going to do that unless they either think they're facing catastrophe in 2018 or unless there is a catastrophe for them in 2018 in terms of the elections. And so... I don't know, not 17 years, but there have been a lot of talk, well, he won't last a week, he won't last a month, he won't last a year. My own feeling for some time is that he is with the United States and the world for at least four years. So because this is a radio program and we want to get a diversity of voices, so not everyone being a man, thank you. Yeah. Hi. Um, two questions, if I may, but they're both quick. Um, to uh, Dr. Zarakal, I wanted to just push um, on the question of Kurdish independence and why the surrounding countries, like the ones that you mentioned, Iran, Iraq, might be against that. I wanted to understand a bit more about that. And the second question was, are there any credible democratic candidates coming up in the American political system that could make a challenge to the Republicans in a meaningful way? The, sh the short answer is that Kurds are divided across four countries. Uh, so Turkey, Iraq, Iran, and Syria. And uh, there's a concern by governments of those countries that Kurdish independence anywhere will strengthen the secessionist movements that they themselves face. Iran's situation is a bit more complicated. They're also... Uh, internal divisions within the Kurdish movement, uh, etc. But in general, I guess what I was saying is that for the last hundred years, it's been established policy. All the states that exist want to prevent an independent Kurdistan from existing because they're worried about uh, t territorial loss. Who, who wants to say there's a shining hope for the Democratic Party? Gosh, I don't want to think about 2020 yet, but um, yeah, there's names that get bandied around Cory Booker, Kamala Harris, senators from New Jersey and, and California, respectively. 
I don't think Bernie Sanders probably has it in him for another run. I think the Clinton-Sanders wounds in the Democratic Party are still going to be too fresh by 2020 for that to be a really good idea. I'm from Minnesota. I'm reading a book right now by Al Franken, who is one of our senators, called Master of the Senate, which is a tongue-in-cheek book. I really like Al. He also uh, went to my high school, um, and I wouldn't mind to see him throw his hat in the ring, but I think that would be a dark horse, dark horse. Gary, did anyone go to your high school? Uh, no. Who you the, would like to recommend? Uh, there, no one, but the, the, uh, that's not a worry because American presidential candidates come out of nowhere quickly. Obama, Clinton, Carter, whether you like them or not, they, they came out of nowhere quickly. So there's a tremendous amount of time. The more serious issue is the way in which the Democratic Party has been convulsed, just as the Republican Party was convulsed by Trump, the Democratic Party was convulsed from the left by Sanders. The other thing I worry about in connection to the Democratic Party is that their bench is thin. The backbenchers are thin. Uh, they have lost a thousand state office holders since 2010, replaced by Republicans. That's a catastrophic loss. That's the bench. You've got to come through state politics, generally speaking, unless Trump is establishing the new standard to make a splash in American politics. And the numbers of young Democrats who would normally be involved in this uh, have been wiped out. A generation has been wiped out. This is all due to the election and the redistricting that happened in 2010. So they have a lot of work and uh, mobilization to do. And it is one feature of democratic politics in lots of places that we're waiting for this generational shift, with the exception of France, which may have gone through it. The politics seems to be frozen with a generation of politicians who came through, obviously with the exception of Trump, but he's of that generation in a more traditional way. You see it with the Conservative Party. You see it with the Labour Party that people are thinking about who's going to come after Corbyn, but no one's clear who it is, with Merkel in Germany. That, but that next generation down, first, there aren't so many people doing politics from that generation. It's thinner, I think, across the world. I mean, it's not such a conventional career. And there is that gap. It's as though... We're waiting for something to just flip it. So from Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump or Angela Merkel or Theresa May or David Davis, all of them, to the next one. But it's, there's that feeling there might not be a lot there. It's a cheery thought. There will be. I mean, there's something there. I'm not, <laughs> and I'm not sort of denigrating those it's politicians a, at all. There will be some amazingly talented people we've not heard of. Yes. But th- there was a generation for whom politics was a kind of career and that generation beneath, that's a narrower pool of people. Yes, and the international perspective you're offering is an, is an important one. There's a sense of crisis and pivot in politics, chaos and change in politics. And yes, waiting for the young generation to arrive. Young people out there, we're waiting for you. Kim Jong-un is a millennial who's risen to the top of, <laughs> of national politics. So North Korea has made the transition. Um, so, so we've got two people here. If we take the lady in the front and then, yep, first, thanks. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask who really holds political power in Britain particularly, but perhaps it also explains the states. Is it politicians or is it the un- unelected broadcast media who seem to feel they have a mandate to attack anything that is an idea, whether it's good or not? So speaking as a podcast, I take it, do we count as the no, unelected? No, you don't. No, 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 no. <laughs> The great thing about being a podcast is you can claim to be something that you're not. Uh, Chris? um, I I think my view is that the election that we had in this country earlier this year 
strikes against that kind of hypothesis, that lots of people thought that Corbyn's Labour Party would be wiped out, and relentlessly they pointed to the terrible media coverage that Jeremy Corbyn personally and the party he led got over the last couple of years. And they knew that at the election, this is maybe more about the print media than the broadcast media, but the broadcast media was criticized a lot. One of the things people around the Labour Party sometimes say is that they thought that why the media mattered is that during the election campaign, the rules about impartiality are much more strictly observed. And so people, when you're asking the, the question, and it's a real puzzle of why the Labour, the Labour vote, as recorded in the opinion polls, rose and rose and rose during the election campaign, one view is that the broadcasters were required to be impartial in a way that they just hadn't been before for the previous two years or so. Um, but I think... So I think you can make quite a good case that that influence of the broadcast media, the, the national press, the press barons, is waning. Who holds power? Well, you know, right now I think it's the European Union institute, institutions that hold power, that the dominant political issue is Brexit, and the dominant agency that will shape the way Brexit goes are the EU 27 institutions. And the mistake we make in this country is that we think that it's all about, oh, do we want Canada, or do we want Norway, or do we want Switzerland, or do we want Turkey, or do we want to be in the EEA, and do we want to be in the customs union? But it's much more about what the Europeans will agree to than what we will ask for. Do you want to come back? Sorry, to go back, I was interested in your um, summary that you felt the press had been attacking Corbyn more than, say, the Tory party. And I wondered if anyone's analysed the content. Lots of people do, but a lot of it is, a scholarship is very tiresome because what they do is they do this content analysis where they listen to, you know, half an hour of Newsnight and they say, ah, oh, yes, Labour was on for five minutes, but the Conservatives were on for ten minutes, and that shows that they're paying more attention to the Tories. Um, but it's a very superficial way of actually trying to get to grips with what's actually being said um, and what kind of effect it might have, and it's very difficult to do research on the impact it's having on, on audience and viewers and readers. So the research is out there. Um, personally, I find whenever I look at it, I end up you know, underwhelmed. Um, but plenty of people do work on this. We've, we've discussed this question a lot. I can see John Norton, who's here, who we talked to on our podcast about this thing. I mean, there's also something fundamentally changing because of the digital revolution in the way that people consume news and the, the, the places that they get it from. And it's barely begun to be understood and it, it's almost certainly that one of the reasons that politics is so surprising it's actually no one quite knows how to read this it's not even clear that the platforms like Facebook that are responsible for this change entirely understand what it is that they've unleashed and so we're at the probably we're at the beginning of a really fundamental shift and that the research that's being done now is fighting the last war and we need to think about the next one not actual war but yep I was a bit um, made to feel a bit queasy by the remark somebody made earlier about Theresa May's weakness uh, and the fact that there had been a two-hour cabinet this week. Uh, and I'd like to ask some reflections on cabinet government, really, because I would have thought her weakness is due to her position in the House of Commons, her party's position. I mean, if we equate strong leadership, which is the sort of media-driven politics we have, with um, short cabinets. I mean, you only have to go back to Blair in Iraq to know that the failure of cabinet government, as Chilcott brought out, was one of the reasons we were propelled into an illegal war. 
So my question really is, in discussions uh, taking in Turkey and taking in the United States, there are models of cabinet government, certainly in the United States, which used to be important. And there have been times in British history where cabinet discussion and so on is, has been important too. So do we still have cabinet government now in Britain or do we just have a quasi-presidential system which has been foisted on? So I'm going to say in response to that, I think that's an excellent question. <laughs> Who would like to answer it? I think you're right that one way of looking at Mrs May is that she's a weak leader, and another way of looking at her is that, in general, when political parties have small and non-existent majorities in the Commons, then you're going to get a different style of executive governance. And it was the same when John Major took over from Mrs Thatcher, um, that, uh, and then in the period in the 1990s, with a small and then disappearing Conservative majority, that uh, the Cabinet was more powerful and the Prime Minister was less powerful. So you can put a different valuation on weakness if you like, but my thought was really that you know, if before she gives a speech, Mrs May has to sit down with the Cabinet and they go through it line by line to make sure that no one has a sufficiently large objection that they're going to storm out, that's not on the face of it an especially attractive model for an efficient form of government especially when everyone knows that the problems aren't being resolved, they're being, they're being kicked down the road. Again, I don't want to knock can-kicking in plenty of circumstances, especially, I think, concerning the European response to the banking crisis over the last few years, kicking the can down the road and hoping that something comes up can be a very sensible strategy. Right now, the government is hoping that it will be. But you're absolutely right. You can, in my remarks, maybe emphasise the downside of of weak executive government, but there's certainly a case to be made for weak executive government and for having a parliament that's properly in control of, um, and that, of politics. And I, I think it is true, it comes out of that, that we talk about strong leadership, but leadership has so many different dimensions to it. The Blair case, what kind of discussion internally you need before you take that kind of decision relative to being in a complex negotiation with a complicated organisation and needing to arrive at a clear position relative to giving the kind of speech that will signal strengths which you do need in those negotiations. Those are very, very different things. And again, there's always that risk, and I'm not saying that's in your question, that, that we compare to the past example of where it went wrong, like Blair. I mean, Blair, unquestionably, the, that, that decision would have benefited from more cabinet government. It's not clear that Theresa May's speech benefited from more cabinet discussion, but these are very different things. I think we have time for one more brief question, ideally one everyone can give a very short answer to as well. Uh, it was a question for uh, Chris, actually. Do you think there's been a dangerous disregard for the Northern Irish peace process and the Good Friday Agreement? And do you fear that whatever way the border ends up aligning, uh, there could be a re-emergence of violence? So that is not the kind of question that we can give a short answer to, no, but we can try. Sorry. This, this, so, sorry, this guy, if we just wait for the microphone, one last one, yeah. Um, you didn't mention the possibility of an Irish exit along with Britain from the EU, and that is now being mooted in some important quarters as a realistic answer, because most of Ireland's trade, the vast majority, is actually with the UK. On the peace process, I think this is one of the fraught issues around Brexit, absolutely. The government is being very firm that there cannot be a return to a border, they say a hard border, or they sometimes say a border with physical infrastructure. It's not going to be a border 
patrolled by men with guns. That's the key thing that matters. The government is making the right noise at the moment, but having made that noise, as I was saying earlier, it then becomes impossible to see what a plausible solution looks like, and then we don't know then how it will be resolved, and it may be resolved um, in crisis conditions with very, very bad results. So I think it's absolutely something that is worth worrying about all over Europe, whether it was the conflict with the Basques or the conflict in Ireland. The relevant countries being members of the European Union does seem to have something to do with their resolution of these issues from the 1960s and 70s where a lot of people were being killed and the British are ripping that up. And it is going to be interesting and worrying to see what happens. You're going to have to give a very short answer to the second About question. an Irish exit from the European Union, in my experience, I've only seen right-wing British figures sort of saying that they think this is in prospect as a sort of bit of fantasy wish fulfillment because it would solve some of these issues. I haven't seen any serious evidence of democratic Irish politicians or Irish public opinion more broadly paying attention to this. So I'm pretty sceptical right now that this will go anywhere, but the suggestion is occasionally made. I would, I would just throw in on the point of Irish trade with the UK right, being a very important source of income. That's absolutely right. But um, I've always fascinated here, a lot of people talk about Brexit and they say, well, you know, trade, right, with the European Union, we're a large, we're the fifth largest economy in the world, right, and so this will force the Europeans to negotiate with us. But if, if trade was as important factor in these calculations that states make, Brexit wouldn't have happened in the first place, right? So there's this kind of double think, this compartmentalized thinking that often gets reduced to trade. And I, I would say that the idea that Ireland would want to be all of a sudden uh, more dependent on the UK again, there's a history there uh, that strikes me as, as putting the kibosh on that that's proposal. Double think is a good place to end. Thank you very much to our panel. Thank you also to our audience for some excellent and very difficult to answer questions. Sorry we didn't get time to get to everybody. Um, do listen to us. We, we do this every week. We never resolve these questions. We predict elections wrong consistently. Uh, we got the New Zealand election wrong, I'm delighted to say. We'll continue to get elections wrong, but we'll continue to try and make sense of them after they've happened as well. Thank you very much for coming. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. I called him a tiny dancer. Was it Rocket Man? <laughs> I've been sitting on that one for like, anyway, sorry. Okay. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. <laughs>